Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Hey, y'all, it's Alante, and you're listening to Black and in Grad School, the podcast that helps women and people of color like you excel in this journey. If you're listening, I believe you are an aspiring or current scholar who wants to successfully navigate this process by sharing my experience while pursuing my PhD and interviewing other black graduate students or early career professionals. It is my hope that you can glean encouragement, advice and strategies that you can apply to your journey. Thanks for listening. Hey, y'all, it's Alante back with another episode of Black and in Grad School. And today I have another one of my Internet friends here. So, um, Jasmine, I you and I have been following each other for quite a while. And so even though this is probably like number two or three of our actual conversations, (laughs) um, I feel like I know you. So thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So just so y'all know a little bit more about Jasmine, she is a fourth year PhD student um, pursuing, a, earning her PhD in biomedical sciences. And her research focuses on the effects of feeding behaviors on risk factors for diabetic nephropathy. Yeah, nephropathy. Yes. Nephropathy. <laughs> Ooh, the fact that I got it the first try. Go me. Yay. All right. That's <laughs> dope. Um, we're definitely going to have to get into that because I have no idea what that word means. Um, but before we do that, well, it'll kind of go into the first question, honestly, is just like, how did you pick this field? How did diabetic nephropathy become your area of expertise? Yeah, so it actually was not my first area of expertise. So in general, I am a cell and molecular biologist. So anything that's happening in a cell or at a molecular level, I'm all about it. So um, when I got to grad school, obviously cell and molecular biology encompasses like everything because everything's made of cells. So realizing that, I you know, realized that I have this wide open world of things that I can go into research doing. So I started out doing very basic health sciences. So I was looking at essentially how proteins move around in a cell and the molecular level of that. And um, after that, I got into diabetes, looking more at the liver. And so when I went, made that pivot from basic health sciences to more endocrinology and diabetes, I realized that people tend to care a little bit more about your research when it's tied to some massive disease like diabetes, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, things like that. But also I have a family history of diabetes. So on both sides of my family, my granddad and you know my grandmother on my mom's side, my granddad on my dad's side, they both have had diabetes and you know I have aunts, cousins, everything with diabetes. So I realized that that was something that kind of was personally important to me but also something that I could get other people on board with kind of wanting to fund and caring about and things like that. And so when I joined my most recent lab, they, I knew I wanted to stay in the field of diabetes, but my boss was also looking at kidneys. And so I just kind of, you know, fell into that. I knew I wanted to stick with diabetes, but I guess I've kind of had that benefit of being able to look at the effects of diabetes in different organs. 
Um, so long story short is I just kind of fell into it, knew I wanted to do diabetes, but my boss was looking at the kidney. That's what he has the big bucks for. So that's what I went with. Look, research opportunities are real. Um, I think that sometimes we can be too rigid, right? And like, I need to do this exact work, which, you know, kudos, but also there are times when like really great research opportunities come about and it's to our advantage to take advantage to, you know, pursue those opportunities. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, across, if you even look at a lot of people's careers, specifically, at least I only know people in STEM, right? That's people that I look at when I'm looking for advisors or people that I want to work with, they switch, you know, kind of expertise along their career, you Mm -hmm. know, and, and a lot of it is because an opportunity showed up that, you know, they could find a tie in, but maybe um, that wasn't their original area of, of expertise. So yes, this is a thing. And, and shout out to you for taking advantage of that, even though, you know, you said you fell into it, but you took advantage (laughs) of a research opportunity. Yeah. And so, you know, you, you knew that you wanted to study diabetes. You knew that you wanted to stay in this space as a cellular and molecular biologist, but how did you decide that you were going to pursue the PhD? What made you decide after undergrad, you know, I'm going to do this master's and PhD journey? Yeah, undergrad, I came, I actually came into undergrad, first of all, as a psychology major. I was going to major in psychology, minor in English, because again, one of those situations where my parents told me, you know, major in what will make you money and minor in what you're interested in. So I knew that I was really intrigued by the brain and kind of those kinds of phenomena. But I also really love English. I love literature. I love composition. So getting to grad school, um, or sorry, getting to undergrad uh, during freshman orientation, I actually had a really good friend of mine pass away very suddenly. And so at that moment, of course, you know, I had this thought that something's got to be done. You know, my friend had passed away because she had a seizure. And so I, you know, made this pivot again. And I was like, you know, I'm going to be a doctor. I have to go get this biology degree because that's the only way I can ever be a doctor is to go to medical school. And got to my my sophomore year of uh, biology, which was kind of more cell and molecular biology. And Dr. Hancock was our our lab director and kind of the person who was in charge of the class. And I would always ask like one-off questions in lab. So questions about like the UV spectrum, questions about the difference between corn and maize. Is that the same as the difference between a banana and a plantain? And he was just like, you know, thank you for these questions. Like, you're obviously very curious. Why don't you, you know, start doing research? And I was like, well, you know, obviously I need some research to go to medical school. So sure. And he's like, you don't have to go to medical school. Like you actually seem like you're a very curious person. You can just, you can become a doctor doing research. And so I had no idea that getting a PhD was even an option in the sciences. And so I really credit me going to grad school to Dr. Hancock because he's the one that told me it was an option, you know, helped me to realize my potential in being able to do research and talk about my research. But he also was the person that's like, you know, you need to take the GRE, you need to take these classes, that's how you'll get there. So um, yeah, I really, I credit it a lot to him for kind of showing me this pathway and then making sure that I had the tools to be successful. Love it. Love to always hear about a professor that's like, you know, you could do this this way, you know, like, Mm -hmm. and someone who encourages the research path and like offering another option, because I I definitely think that sometimes we do think like there's only one path to, you know, making this impact on your friend. Like, I'm so sorry to hear that also, but the, the encouragement and like the, 
the view someone seeing your potential always like makes me really happy like yes yeah. you know someone realizing you know that that we have a skill set that could be very useful and beneficial um to the field and um and now you know you're in your program you are well in your program right mm-hmm. farther in than you are more time in and uh, in front of you and so i want to know you know what has it what has your experience been like as a graduate student you know being a black woman and what are maybe some some uh lemonade and some lemons okay what's the good like what's the bad so I think the best part about being in grad school has been just kind of like finding myself so who I am now and who I am when I entered grad school two totally different people yes since I've gotten to grad school I've made you know friends who are all at different places of their life which I think is another good thing about grad school is that I came straight from undergrad to grad school, but I have friends that, you know, did a master. Some of them took a gap year. Some of them took a gap decade. You know, some of them are, you know, pushing 30 or in their 30s. And here I am, you know, 25. So they have life experience. And so I have a much more diverse friend group now in terms of age, but also, you know, ethnicity and such. So I think the best part has been kind of growing into myself and who I am most comfortable being and having a support system that facilitates that. Now, the lemonade of grad school has been, I guess people call it like the hidden curriculum that comes with being a Black Mm -hmm. person in academia. And that is, you know, having to learn how to feel the microaggressions and the straight up racism that comes your way and all of the different kind of hurdles that that presents, having to work, you know, four times as hard to get twice as much and, having to really be beyond excellent to get the same opportunities that are afforded to some of your white colleagues simply for them being white and in grad school. And so for me, I think the it's been really difficult because I have switched labs while I've been in grad school. I've switched labs twice. So I'm on my fourth year, I'm in my third lab. And um, kind of having to make that pivot more than once has been very difficult. And it has been the result of a few different things. You know, it's been the result of personalities just not matching up. It's been the result of um, microaggressions and things that have been said to me and expectations that were made of me that I did not see being made of my white colleagues and things that I didn't think were being said to my white colleagues. Um, But I think that that's kind of been the real tough part is just having to navigate this whole already obstacle course, um, but with even more obstacles kind of thrown in there. Yeah. I love the way you said that too, right? It is an obstacle course. It's, and I feel like sometimes every now and then I, I worry that people think like, I am like, Oh my God, the black experience is just so terrible compared to everybody else. But like it is, you know, there are, there are some nuances to our experiences, you know, as, as, as people of color, as black people. And then also, you know, as women, mm-hmm. I think that, that, you know, needs to be addressed and fixed. But in the meantime, right, we can share our experiences to empower other people if they find themselves in, this, in the same experience, which is why, you know, one of the many reasons that I want to talk to you today, Jasmine, mm-hmm. is because you've made those pivots and you've made those hard decisions, had difficult conversations to, you know, to do what was best for you as, as a, um, as someone who's becoming a subject matter expert in your field. Mm-hmm. And so you share some of the reasons why, which sound absolutely valid and the things sometimes compatibility happens, right? That happens to everybody, but the microaggressions, the uneven 
work expectations, those types of things. Um, if you find yourself in that situation, those of you are listening, you know, kind of keep an eye out and say like, okay, some of these are red flags, right? These are red flags mm-hmm. in your, in your experience. And so how, how did you then decide, okay, I need to switch? Like, what was that process for you transitioning to another lab? Let's go from lab one to two first. So tell me like what that was like. Sure. So uh, my first lab was very basic science. So we were looking at, you know, like I said before, the movement of proteins throughout the cell, um, to put it simply. And so a lot of my research was using cells and using microscopy and making those pretty fluorescent pictures that everyone loves to look at. I was given a project that was actually pretty interesting to me, but I was having this difficulty with getting things to work. And so for me, it felt like my boss was um, something wouldn't work. And instead of sitting together and us trying to figure out why it's not working, it was do it again or scrap it and do something else. And so I didn't really like that. But also toward kind of the tail end of me leaving, um, I realized I, I was in a big lab. We had, I think, nine to 12 people in the lab. And it was me and we had a black postdoc as well in the lab. And I realized when I was going to lab meetings that my boss was not that thrilled about my project. And obviously neither was I, like it wasn't working, but um, I wasn't really generating any data that was moving the project forward. I was obviously very frustrated by that. Um, I was still in a place where, you know, I am, I was comparing myself to my colleagues who were, you know, publishing papers and going to conferences And I was still putting my personal worth into the results of my experiments. So my experiments weren't working. I thought that was a direct result of me. But I was going to lab meeting. I wasn't generating data. I wasn't that thrilled about lab meeting. I noticed that my boss wasn't that thrilled about, you know, my progress. But I also noticed that our Black postdoc had a project as well that just wasn't working. And rather than my boss telling him, you know what, maybe this is, you know, this not working is the answer. It just doesn't work. And let's move on to something else. She kind of kept making him reinvent the wheel and do these same experiments over and over again. And so um, I started to kind of feel this um, inequality in the, the quality of experiments that we were being told to do in, you know, her excitement between, you know, my lack of moving forward, but still generating data and other students. And so I think that we just kind of started to butt heads a lot and got to a point where, you know, I was kind of doing everything on my own. So I was setting up my committee. I was scheduling my committee meeting. I was putting together my PowerPoint for my committee. And I remember, I think the point where I was like, I have to leave was I had done all that, scheduled my committee meeting, had my committee meeting. And I was presenting my data. Most of it was negative. Most of it was, you know, negative data is still data, but it wasn't really moving Mm -hmm. my project forward. And at the end of it, everyone left. She stuck behind and she says, you know, why are you showing all of this negative data? Like you don't need to show people negative data. And I was like, well, you know, negative data is still data. And we just kind of had this argument about that. And after that, you know, our whole relationship just crumbled. 
And so we got to a point where, you know, she said, you know, I, I don't think that this is a good fit. And I agreed. And we, you know, very respectfully parted ways. And that's how I kind of made that pivot from my first lab to my second lab. Okay. So how did you, I mean, wow, like, number one, just like, noticing those, those things, you know, is one thing I always like also hope someone listening is faculty, you know, um, mm-hmm. or thinking about being faculty, um, especially like current faculty, um, and thinking about how you deal with your students and checking yourself about, you know, your response to certain students and just like just seeing if it's consistent, but also the idea that, you know, it just seems like almost given both, both of you all were given projects that were not working, you know, I mean, and that happens, right? Like, I don't know if we can say like, she gave some impossible projects to you all intentionally that mm-hmm. happens, but also the idea of like being helpful for the troubleshooting process, especially when you said you were coming fresh out of undergrad. Right. So like, yeah. of course you have, clearly you have research skills, but there probably still was like space or an opportunity for some more support. And and that makes me actually want to ask you just really quickly, like what about your other lab members? Were they supportive or helpful with you troubleshooting or was everybody just super individual? It was very, I think for me, me looking at things, it was very individual. Everyone kind of had their own project. And I thought of our lab as kind of like a group of islands that just happened to be near each other. You know, everyone's project obviously was very tied into each other, but I compared it to my undergrad lab where I knew how my project related to my lab mates project. I didn't know any of that in this lab. Got it. Okay. Okay. So there wasn't a lot of opportunity for you all to be like, Hey, can you look at this data? There's something I'm missing, you know, Mm -hmm. like having those types of conversations. Okay. So that's another thing, right? Thinking about the, uh, the, tone that was set as far as collaboration and like helping to troubleshoot because I know sometimes that's where other grad students come in handy right to buffer like having to go right to the advisor like I'm having these issues and they can be helpful but that Mm -hmm. wasn't in place and then like you said you shared this data and had this riff so how did you then find the second advisor? Were you, when you applied to the school, did you already know like, okay, there are X amount of people that are going to be in this space that I could be in? Or were you just kind of like building this bridge as you were going over it? Yeah, I was very much building the bridge as I was going over it. So um, fortunately, my program allows us to do rotations before we select a lab. So I had done three rotations before I ended up in my first lab. And so my first lab was the third of my three rotations. And so finding my second lab, I remembered that I liked my first rotation a whole lot, just kind of like the the feel of the lab. It was a much smaller lab. So I would have more one-on-one time with my PI. The PI was very young, you know, very energetic still, still did things at the lab bench. So I kind of like that that was kind of a total 180 of the lab that I had just left. And so that's kind of how I ended up back in that that lab that I had kind of started my career in. That is something that's probably more consistent on the science side, right? I don't really feel like I hear about a lot of like rotations mm-hmm. from my social sciences or humanities folks. But one thing I'll just kind of insert here, if you're not in that type of situation where you get to do a rotation, looking at the faculty before you pick a school and making sure there are multiple people who do the work that you're interested in, or at least a close tangent. So Mm -hmm. in the event that you might have to transition because these things happen all the time, Jasmine's story is not unique, you know, you have someone else that you can like work with in the event, right? Like it's kind of having a backup plan and never hurts to have one. I just wanted to kind of say that before moving forward 
even though, like you said, you had this rotation. And so now you're in this, this second lab and, and then how was that going? Um, yeah. So when I got to the second lab, it started out really well. Um, I was really obviously excited to be away from my first lab and away from that situation. And this lab, I had a pretty good rapport with everyone in the lab already. And so getting settled in and kind of starting my, my project wasn't, you know, a giant learning curve. I was doing, I started my project by just basically redoing some experiments that had already been done in the lab just to kind of have my own preliminary data. So in order to do that, we had to generate the cell line. So basically we had to make these cells that would glow green and that's how we would know if they had the insulin receptor on them. And so I could not figure out how to get these cells, how to get, you know, this glowing insulin receptor into these cells, basically. And again, you know, I had this situation where my experiments weren't working, but I learned from the first time and I said, you know what, I'm going to take initiative and, you know, come to my boss with solutions and not problems. So I came to my boss and I said, you know, hey, this isn't working. Um, I know that I know that it's been done in the past, so I know that it works, but for some reason it's not working. So we went through the process of ordering new cells because we figured that the cells were old. Um, we went through the process of just generating this plasmid all over again so that we could just make um, just a fresh version of this glowing insulin receptor to put into the cells. We um, went through the process of kind of sorting the cells out to try to just grow up the ones that had the insulin receptor in them and nothing was working. And so again, you know, I had this feeling like my first lab where nothing's working, it's because of me, you know, and so at this time, I also was still putting a lot of my worth into whether my experiments worked or not. And I felt like I was, again, doing the same things over and over again, just in different ways. And so I um, really started to kind of detach from doing my research altogether And admittedly, I started pouring a lot more of my time into extracurriculars. So I was basically a part of every student group. I was helping, you know, my program with recruitment. I was doing a lot of stuff where I was not in the lab because I did not want to have to deal with these experiments that weren't working. And so um, I will say that me leaving my second lab was kind of equal parts, you know, my fault, as well as, you know, just science in general. And so uh, this lab, I was in up until, what, May of this year. And so things really kind of started to uh, kind of pop off in that lab right when COVID hit. And obviously, when COVID first hit, it was like, not only are we in this pandemic that, you know, is killing people left and right, but I'd also had family members that were affected by it. I lost my great-grandmother due to covid And then, of course, right after that is when, you know, George Floyd was murdered, Breonna Taylor was murdered, Ahmaud Arbery, his story came out. And so, you know, I'm sitting at home, you know, I'm stuck at home in the middle of a pandemic, and I am watching my friends still go to parties and do dumb stuff. You know, Black people are dying in the streets, people are protesting, there are riots happening, like everything is literally crumbling in on itself. And so obviously, like, I had zero motivation to do anything related to, you know, research. I was very, very, very depressed and very anxious. And I felt a lot of despair. And I was very hopeless. Like, mentally, I was not in a great place. And so throughout all of this, though, my boss at the time 
you know, was like, well, since you're at home, you can start working on the written portion of your qualifying exam, which was valid. I needed to do that. But then it was also, you need to write an abstract for this. You need to work on a review paper. You need to do this. You need to do this. And then it was, let's have a Zoom meeting every day to go over what progress you've made, which obviously is going to be none because I have no motivation to do any of this. And so um, it got to the point where, you know, my mental health was just awful. So I went to my boss and I said, hey, I feel very anxious. I feel very depressed. Like, read the room. It's not a good time right now. And my boss said to me, well, give me a timeline of when you'll feel better. And no, I, I was like, what? Like, you know, I, and you know, it caught me by surprise because I'm thinking he's going to say, give me a timeline of when you think you'll have these things done, but it was give me a timeline of when you think you'll feel better. So I know when I can expect these things to be done. And so I was like, okay, I don't like this at all. So, um, I was like, well, I'm just gonna, I'm, I'm gonna go home. Like I, I just need to go home and like process what in the world just happened. And so, you know, I got home and uh, my boss is like, you know what, just take a week where you do not have to do anything in the lab, a week where you are literally just at home, you know, do what you need to do, you know, go seek professional help, whatever it is you need to do. You have a week where I will not contact you about anything related to the lab. And at the end of that week, we'll talk about my expectations of you and move forward from there. And so I was like, this is great. You know, I'm going to take this week, you know, sleep, avoid being on social media and the news and all that. I don't have to worry about these grants. I don't have to worry about anything. And it was a pretty good week. But when we came back at the end of that week, my boss had this typed up paper of expectations for me that basically was like, you need to be in the lab. Does not matter that we're in the middle of a pandemic. You need to be in the lab at least 40 hours a week. If you have nothing to do, you need to come to the lab anyway and sit at your desk and read papers. You need to drop all of your extracurricular obligations. Essentially, you need to just be a student. If you're not at home, you need to be at the lab, basically. And um, I am someone who, we had an open lab concept at the time, and I'm someone who I get my, my work done really well when I have background noise that's just kind of like coffee noise. And so I had these headphones. I have over-ear headphones that I wear. And um, they have noise-canceling ability, but because I'm in an open-concept lab, I never had the noise-canceling on. And one of the things he said in this expectation sheet was, you can't wear headphones. And I was like, okay, so this is just getting like very, very personal. Like These are expectations mm-hmm. that have been tailor-made for me. So um, I actually, fortunately, our program, we have uh, an associate dean in our program who's kind of over... Uh, sorry, we have an associate dean in the graduate school who's over my program, and he's very, very, very plugged into the students. So I sent him this this paperwork, and I'm like, what do I do? Like, this is ridiculous. Like, please tell me if this is me or if this is ridiculous to you as well. And he was like, yeah, this is kind of strange. Like, don't feel like you need to. And it, it was a contract. I had to sign this paperwork. So he's like, wow. don't feel like you need to sign this because this this is a lot. So he's like, you know, go back to your boss, ask him, you know, are these negotiable? Is this something that everyone in the lab is being given and what you all can do to fix your relationship and then move forward from there? So I went to see my boss after getting this paperwork and, you know, I was like, 
you know, asked him those questions. Is this negotiable? No, it's not negotiable. You can sign it or you can leave. And so at that point I was like, yeah, I'm going to leave. Like I'm not about to sign this whatsoever. So at that point I'd already made the decision, but I also wanted to know, are these expectations specifically for me or are other people in the lab also getting these same expectations? So I asked him that and he was like, no, you're the only person that's getting these expectations because you're the only person that needs them. And then from there he went into, um, and again, you know, I'll mention that I was very like not in a great place mentally at this point. And he was like, well, you know, when we're on zoom calls for lab meeting or, you know, when you're in the lab, you don't smile a lot. You're kind of just like the tone of the lab totally changes when you're in the lab. It's not good. And so for me, I was like, this man just tell me that I need to smile more, like read the room. So I was like, you know, I'm obviously I'm done here. Like, obviously you do not want me to be here. I am ruining the, the feeling of your lab. You're giving me these expectations that now that I look back on it were tailor-made so that I would not sign this paperwork. And it would be basically my fault that mm. I'm not staying in the lab and not your fault. And so I was like, you know what, I'll, I'll take it. And I, I left. And so that obviously did not help my mental health a whole lot. And I actually really thought about just leaving research, scientific research altogether. So I started looking into um, PA school. I started looking into pharmacy school. I started looking into law school, like just other things that I could do to get away from this environment. And so um, I left that lab. I had like a two week period where I just was trying to figure out if I even wanted to stay in my program. And Fortunately, again, this is kind of me talking about my support system. Fortunately, I had friends in the program who were like, no, you, you've come entirely too far to leave. Like you have all of these experiences still, you still have a lot to give to the field and you still, you, you, you finna get this degree. Like that, that was basically the Mm -hmm, long and short of it. And so I, my friends really like, they, they showed out for me, like they went and found, Um, they were sending me people they knew that had openings in their lab. They sent me people that, you know, they were people who they had friends that had worked for that were good people. And that's really how I ended up in my lab that I'm in now is that a friend of a friend had just graduated from this lab. She was a black woman and she was like, I can personally vouch for this person that this person is a good person. They want you to do your research and they want you to get out. They don't care about, well, they care, obviously, but they're not going to hold it against you that you are a Black person. Because I think that's an important thing to note in academia is that by me being in academia, I kind of wear two hats. So I'm a scientist. I'm also a Black woman. And those two things have very different requirements of me. So I wanted a PI that was going to allow me to be a scientist, but also allow me to be a Black woman because those two things have very different demands of me personally. And so she was like, yeah, he, if you need to leave the lab to go to a protest, he's, he's not there. As long as you're getting your work done and, you know, you're participating and you're writing abstracts for conferences, he's fine. And so that was really kind of how I ended up in my third lab is having someone who's a black woman vouch for this person and tell me, you know, this is a solid person who just wants what's best for you in your career. Wow. I mean, I wish you saw the moments that I had the bug eyes while you were telling this story throughout throughout the story. Because, like, you really, you know, went through a lot. Yeah. 
that's a lot. And just kudos to you for your strength. Like that was, it took a lot of strength to do a lot of different things. Like you did a lot of different things in, in this story. Like from starting off with just like sending this off to someone else. One, no, actually, let me go back another step. So first with like articulating, like I am having challenges right now and I need to need yeah. you to know that like that is not, it's never easy for anyone to admit that they're having any challenges mm. then to like have to be take spending time, like almost negotiating what you can do in the while dealing with like mental health challenges, which I think that it's very hard to talk about especially like as black graduate students, like, yeah, it, the world is on fire and it's, it's like super hot for us, you know, like, and Mm -hmm. I don't know. I know even in my meetings with my advisors, they check in, but it's like, yeah, it sucks, you know, like, yes. And, and, and I am, I, there are moments where I'm struggling, but it's, I, I then still struggle to articulate that. Like I just, it's just hard. And so like, kudos to you for just being, courageous to say yeah like I, I'm having some challenges and and they are totally valid you know and I'm so mm-hmm. sorry about your your um, family member I think you said your your grandmother your great-grandmother I'm so sorry yeah. that that happened um because it did if it, it affected us disproportionately so it's like these things are happening then the world had a whole another layer of fire you know with all of the uprisings that were a result of all these black folks being killed like just in broad daylight on camera or just uh, you know unnecessarily and then to say what give me a timeline when you're gonna feel better and not cussing him out <laughs> you know what I mean like yeah. that <laughs> was was very you know you you kept a level head and decided okay next let me artic- let me double check make sure that I'm not tripping talk to someone else got an outside source got some good mm-hmm. advice you know um, but also then realizing like this person was trying to push you out. I think, I think last time we talked, even, I don't know if you had come to that realization yet, but even hearing it, it's like, yeah, that no headphones, like who, who is, uh, managing headphones now? <laughs> like, yeah, it was, it was, yeah, it was very, very strange. And yeah. I had even showed it to a couple of my friends and they were like, like, what did you do to piss him off? Like, this is very, mm. very specific. Like, headphones? You can't wear yeah. headphones? Like, Right. And then you change the energy of the... Me- oh, all of these things are just like, they're making my skin crawl a bit. But what you did finally is are te- also telling your people, right? Telling your yeah. people, hey, I am having these challenges. Even sometimes if it's just a vent, or for them to help you, you know, closed mouths do not get fed. And to have a really great one, people you can even reach out to, that's something that you did on the front end, establishing relationships. And then those people being able to identify an, a suitable choice for you and encouraging you to stay in the space, that's beautiful. That's a beautiful community that you've cultivated for yourself. Yeah. So um, there are a couple of things that I want to tell y'all who are listening, you know, like, First is like having your people. I call it your ice plan, like the in case of emergency people that you call when ish gets crazy for grad school. I've talked about that on the episode. I'll include it in the show notes because I can't remember it right now. Also, 
articulating your needs where you're at. Don't be a black box. That's something that Jasmine did really well. And sometimes it will be a positive response. Sometimes it'll be supportive. Sometimes it will not. And taking that information and making a decision based on that. And you also reach out to somebody else, again, for good counsel, for advice, to, to troubleshoot what was going on. And then finally tapping back into that community that you had established for help and letting them know what's going on. So that's like a six-step plan, y'all. But there, <laughs> but I think really, really important steps um, when things like this happen because they happen. And as you see, Jasmine has bounced back like it's nothing. So um, I just wanted to kind of wrap what you said into some action steps. But that's mm. cool wild story yo wild story like legit <laughs> yeah and so now you're in your you're in a in a lab and feeling better yes feeling much okay. better good and feeling better so my last question for you is like what are you hoping to uh do once you're done um once i'm done i actually hope to go into science policy so um i love research obviously, but uh, I see a lot more that I can contribute in the space of affecting policy as it relates to science, but also affecting policy as it relates to K through 12 STEM education. So that's really kind of my focus point is reforming K through 12 STEM education in the United States. Love that. Love that. Well, you know, Jasmine, we wish you the absolute best. Is there anything else that I didn't ask you that you want to share with uh, the folks listening? Um, not that I can think of. Okay. All good. So again, thank you for sharing your story and giving us those details. You know, also y'all listen back if you need to, for the red flags, if you don't know what's going on, you know, if you're like, is that a red flag? It might be, you know, and, and these are get, also give you some ideas of what could be red flags. And so, so, you know, we end every episode with lessons from the trap. So Jasmine, what do you have for us? Uh, my lesson from the trap is from a song called I Got Money Now by Deontay Hitchcock. And um, I'm someone that when I find a song I like, I listen to it again and again. And so I have probably overplayed this song. I'm probably single-handedly keeping money in this man's pocket, but this is a great <laughs> song. Um, so uh, there's about four lines. The whole song is great. It's about, you know, coming up from nothing and, and you know, balling out with your friends when you finally make it to the top. But the, the lines that really speak to me are, find out what I was worth, then I put on a tax, built my foundation on Fenty Nomad, stay out the way, go get the money and stack, but my mama's still working, I cannot relax. And so for me, that is, I'm going to just take it line by line. So found out what I was, find out what I was worth, then I put on a tax. That speaks to me at this point in my life, because I'm really auditing my relationships. I'm auditing my familial relationships, my friendships, my romantic relationship, my professional relationships. And I am really looking at not only what is this person giving me and how is this relationship growing me, but also what am I contributing into this relationship? So I'm really kind of reevaluating my worth and my mission and the things and the people in my life that are contributing to my mission or not and really pouring myself into the relationships that are growing me and making sure that I'm also giving back to that other person in the same way. So then built my foundation on Fenty No Mac. That's basically what I'm doing right now. I'm building my foundation for the rest of my life. I'm making lifelong friends. I'm making lifelong professional connections. And I'm doing that with people who want me to succeed because they want to see me succeed, not people who want me to succeed so that they can say, 
I helped her get to this point. I'm building my, my foundation for the rest of my career with people who want me to succeed. And I also want them to succeed just so that we can be at the top together. Not so that they can be like, yeah, I know her and I helped her edit one of her, you know, manuscripts. And now it's in this giant magazine, but people who really just want me to succeed so that we can celebrate together. Um, stay out the way, go get the money and stack. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. Um, I don't speak on my blessings until my blessings have been manifested. So, you know, you'll tell people that you have this opportunity that you just accepted and they will instantly start praying on your downfall and hoping that that opportunity falls through. So I stay out of the way. I do not come out of hiding unless I have something that has already happened that I want people to know about. And then the last line, but my mom is still working. I cannot relax. My mom is my best friend. Um, My mom has sacrificed so much for me and my family. I remember being in middle school. She was getting her master's degree. She literally was working, going to work on like three to four hours of sleep, you know, getting up at 6 a.m. to go to work, to come home, to take me, my brother and my sister to our extracurriculars, to come back home, make dinner, make sure we had our homework done, spend time with the family. We go to sleep. And then at nine o'clock midnight is when she's starting her homework that's due at 3 a.m. And so for me, like everything I do is to make my mom proud, is to, you know, achieve so much success that one day I can pull up to my mom's job in her dream car and tell her, get your stuff out your office. You never have to come back to this place. So, um, yeah, that's probably my favorite line is, you know, my mom is still working. I cannot relax. Like I will not take my foot off the gas until my mom is covered for the rest of her life. So that's my lesson from the trap. I love that so much. Oh my gosh. Like, I just, I love it for a million reasons. One, I'm actually a big Deontay Hitchcock fan as well. I only know like one song, but like, again, played it to death. And (laughs) all of it, I love like Head Down, Mamas, shout out to mom. Oh, that's so beautiful. I have, I don't even want to add anything to that because I was just really, really good. Jasmine, thank you so much for coming on today. Tell us where we can find you in these internet streets. Absolutely. So on Instagram, I am J.I. Benjamin, uh, Benjamin spelled like Benjamin Franklin. And then on Twitter, I am at J underscore I underscore Benjamin because someone stole J.I. Benjamin from me and has never used it. Um, But you can find me Instagram, Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn under Jasmine I. Benjamin. And if you can manage to find me on Facebook, I am also under the same name. Perfect. Love it so much, Jasmine. Thank you again. And we wish you the best of luck. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Black and in Grad School. For more content to help you on your grad school journey, check out blackandgradschool.com. That's B-L-K-I-N gradschool.com. Love this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Until next time. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.